0: today. I have so many visitors here today. We're very glad that you're here and we hope that you've enjoyed our services thus far. Our song service has been excellent this morning and I hope that I can contribute to that this morning by offering a few ideas that I've studied from God's Word and hopefully help you in your Christian walk. First John chapter 1 verse number 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John makes a very simple yet profound statement regarding the nature of humankind in this verse. In one short sentence, he shows us something important about ourselves, and namely that as people, we're very good at lying to ourselves when it comes to sin in our own lives. The surface lie that we see here is to say we have no sin. I don't believe that's a rampant problem in and of itself within the church. I know of one person I've met in my entire life who was a Christian who believed that as Christians we don't commit sin anymore. Um, it's a pretty ridiculous statement to make. I don't think that's a, a widespread problem, but I think what this verse does show us is a sort of deeper problem that we have as Christians in that we deceive ourselves about the nature of our own sin. We tell ourselves lies about the sin that we have in our lives and attempt to justify that sin instead of dealing with it appropriately. I use the word misconceptions, misunderstandings, fallacies, whatever you want to call it, delusions, justifications, whatever the case may be. We lie to ourselves about the sin that's in our lives. We make up all kinds of excuses. We come up with all kinds of rationalizations about the sin that we have in order to justify that before God somehow. We do that by lying to ourselves and we do it intentionally. We may do it unintentionally or subconsciously. But at the end of the day, it's simply lies that we tell ourselves about our own sin. And the list of lies that we tell ourselves is extremely long. I came up with all kinds of ideas and obviously within the short amount of time that we have this morning, I've got to try to condense that into what I think is the most encompassing aspect of this. And so I'm probably going to miss a few things that you might think are, are bigger. And if you have ideas on this, please, you know, talk to me later. And I want to add that to, to my study on this. But I want to begin talking about a few of these lies that we tell ourselves. The first one, I believe, that's probably one of the most common, is that we can commit sin in a bubble. What do I mean by sin in a bubble? Well, I'm, I mean that sin doesn't affect other people, or that's the lie that we tell ourselves. We say, well, my sin only affects me. It doesn't hurt anybody else what I'm doing. And a couple of things to think about that. First of all, even if that's true, even if your sin only affects yourself, why would that matter? It's still sin. It's still something that separates you from God. It's still something that needs to be dealt with. But the fact of the matter is that it's not true. Sin doesn't just affect ourselves. This is called a detonation chamber. I'm not an expert on it. We've got a few Pantex brethren here that could probably tell us a little bit about that, but then they'd probably have to kill us, so we won't ask them to do that. (laughs) But a detonation chamber is a place where you can safely dispose of weapons or ammunition or bombs, or you can test them in a safe environment. We have something similar in the IT world that's called a detonation chamber, but it's a virtual detonation chamber where Emails that are suspect get caught by different security programs. And they bring those emails into a detonation chamber where they can look at the attachments and, and software that's attached to those emails and they can safely detonate those. See, is this malicious code? Is it malware? Is it a virus? And we somehow think that we have detonation chamber when it comes to our sin. That we can go in and we can test and we can dabble and we can try things out. And it's in this safe, secluded environment because nobody else knows about it. And our sin doesn't affect anyone else. But deep down, we're just lying to ourselves. We know the truth. We know that our sin affects our friends, our family, our brethren, the church. You know, Paul, when he talked about the nation of Israel, he said in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, he said, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. What for? For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, the nation of Israel, his brothers and sisters, because they had rejected Jesus Christ. They had committed the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I have continual sorrow, grief in my heart. Their sin affected him greatly how many times do we see someone addicted to alcohol or drugs or any other sin? And we say, why won't you just leave me alone? I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And again, I don't know why that would matter, but it's not the truth. You know, and there's another lie that we tell ourselves in this world, and that is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a bunch of hogwash. And so is the statement of my sin isn't hurting you. It's only hurting me. When our family and our friends see us caught up in sin, they feel the same way that Paul felt about Israel. It hurts. It causes grief. It causes pain. It causes estrangement. It upheaves lives. It changes the course of a future for a family when we're caught up in sin. You know, it doesn't just affect our family and the people around us. It affects the body of Christ as a whole. You know, when Paul talked about to the Corinthians about The body of Christ and how our relationships with one another deal with the fact that we're all members of a body and we all have our roles to play and our parts to play. And how some of those roles may seem less honorable, but really on those we bestow more abundant honor. Listen to what he says at the end of this in verse 26. He says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. You see, we're a body. We're all in this together. Now, this may mean I'm suffering some sort of tragedy in my life. But it could also mean I'm suffering spiritually because of the sin that I'm holding on to. And what that means is I've got sin in my life. And even if that sin is hidden and nobody else knows about it, I am not the Christian that I should be. And because of that, the church suffers. Because of that, the church is not what it should be. And whether my brethren know it or not, they're suffering right along with my spiritual sickness. If I've got sin that I'm holding on to. And it affects them whether they know it or not, whether you know it or not. There's a man named Achan we read about in Joshua chapter 7. If you remember, the children of Israel cross over the river Jordan and they enter into the promised land and they attack the city of Jericho. And everything goes great with that battle. They do exactly what they do. The city's destroyed. One of the commands that God gave the nation of Israel When they went into Jericho, he said, I want you to destroy everything. I want you to burn everything. I don't want you to take anything out of there. I want it all to be destroyed and consumed. There's a man named Achan during the battle who decided to go against that command of God. And we read in Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, that he answered after it was all found out because the next battle, Israel goes up to this place called Ai, and they say, hey, let's not bother the whole army. Let's just take a few thousand men. Let's go up there and get this done. They were confident at that point. Well, they got up there. They went up there and they got whipped. And Joshua said, Lord, what happened here? What's going on? God said, there's sin in the camp. And eventually they found out it was Achan. He said, indeed, I have sinned. I sinned against the Lord. I saw among the spoils a Babylonish garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold. I I coveted them. I wanted them and I took them. I buried it in my tent and that's where they are. Did his sin affect anybody else? You bet it did. It affected the whole nation of Israel. They got whipped in the next battle because of his sin. And he goes on to talk about it. We see the consequences of that. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? Your sin affected us. The Lord will trouble you this day. So Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. His whole family. What a horrible consequence to this sin. I'm sure Achan thought, nobody will know. Here it is right here. I can take it and be secret and buried in my tent. Nobody will ever know. The scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. And sure enough, Achan did. Now, this is an extreme example, I know. But that's because it's so important. It's important for us to realize that our sin doesn't take place in a detonation chamber. We can't sin in a bubble. It's going to affect everyone around us. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that will he also reap. There will be consequences to our sin. Don't Lie to yourself. Don't tell yourself the lie that my sin doesn't hurt anybody else because it does. Be, sur- be sure your sin will find you out. <clears throat> One of the things that we do as humans is we measure ourselves by a faulty yardstick, other humans. And the lie, another lie that we tell ourselves about sin is that it could be worse. It could, it could be worse. I can look over and say, you know, I look at what Brother Jeffrey's doing and think, well, at least I'm not doing that. That's just an example. I don't know what Jeffrey's doing. <laughs> have you seen what he did? How did you hear about what she did? I'm doing pretty good. I may have this problem, but it's nothing compared to other people. You know, I I believe the Bible. I don't want to make this blanket statement to, to say that there's no such thing as severity of sin and punishment. I believe the Bible speaks to that. That's not the purpose of this lesson this morning to talk about that. I don't want to say much about that other than to say, even if there are levels of severity when it comes to sin and punishment, for us as human beings to look at, the, at God's Word and to judge those severity levels that God has put in place is the ultimate foolish pride. How dare we say, well, this is more severe than anything else. At the end of the day, when it comes to sin Sin separates us from God. It doesn't matter whether I'm a serial killer or whether I'm a shoplifter. It's sin. Is one more serious than the other? Well, it is in our eyes, I guess. Is it in God's? Sin separates us from God. You know, we read of a lot of different laundry lists in the Scripture when it comes to sin. And when we take a really close look at those laundry lists, sometimes it can be a little sobering. As we read in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about people who don't like to retain God in their knowledge. They want to forget about God. They want to get away from Him, and He lets them. And he talks about all these different sins that that we commit, that men commit. And we look at things like, well, sexual immorality and wickedness and murder, evil-mindedness, haters of God, and you think, I don't do those things. That's not who I am. But he includes in this list, whisperers. You ever been a gossip in your life? You ever talked about somebody behind their back? You ever been proud? Disobedient to your parents? Untrustworthy? Unloving? Unforgiving? The list goes on and on. Let's be honest. When we raise this up as a mirror against ourselves, we're going to see some things in us that aren't good. We're going to see some things in us and in our lives that we've done that are sin. And when we start trying to define different severity levels and compare ourselves to other people, we're going to find that that's a useless exercise because it just doesn't matter. And what we we'll read in James chapter 2, verse number 10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble on point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. You see, the same God gave, gave us the commandments. The same God that says don't commit adultery, don't Murder, don't steal, be kind, don't gossip. The same God gave all of those commands. When we break any one of those commands, we've broken or transgressed the law of God. Therefore, we've committed sin. Therefore, we are separated from God because of that sin. And let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that my sin is not as bad as somebody else's. Because at the end of the day, sin is sin and it separates us from God. Do you remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? the story that Jesus told. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. He did the same thing. He had the same problem in his life. I'm glad I'm not like this guy. I'm glad I'm not like other men. These are all the things that I do when all the time he had this sin of pride in his life. And Jesus said, the other man... The tax collector who said, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went down to his house justified rather than this man. Why is that? Well, this man was comparing himself to other people. He wasn't setting the bar high enough. Jesus is where the bar should be. Jesus is the one we need to be measuring ourselves against. We need to be striving for that perfection. Not looking at other people and trying to be better than that. I want to be better than Craig in my life. That's the bar I'm setting, right? Well, that's fine. Craig's a good man. He's a good example to this congregation. He's a good leader as an elder. But at the end of the day, if Craig is my ultimate example, if that's all I'm aiming for, I'm sorry to say, Craig, I'm going to come up short. It's not going to be good enough because Craig has sin in his life, just like we all do. It's not enough for me to say, look at this person or that person. We can't grow content with our state. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already attained. I'm not at a point, Paul said, in my life where I feel like I've attained everything I need to be to be or I'm already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold on that which Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on, never being satisfied, never getting to the point where I say, well, I'm good because I'm better than all the people around me. It's not enough. We need to press on, press toward the goal never being satisfied, never telling ourselves the lie that I'm good enough now because I'm better than the people that are around me. You know, there's a fine line we walk when we talk about our sin and the grace of God. I think it's very easy to get to a point in our lives when we think that we can tell ourselves the lie that forgiveness equals excusing. We've been forgiven of our sins, and we think about the grace of God, there's no denying that we can't earn our salvation. I can never be good enough to deserve the salvation that God has granted me. Neither can you. And so we have the grace of God, the favor that he's shown us, that he sent his only son to this world shed his blood and died on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And let's make no mistake, we are forgiven of our sins for one reason and one reason alone, and that is because the precious blood of Jesus Christ paid the price. We are saved by the grace of God. But it becomes a very slippery slope when we start talking about that grace in terms of covering just anything that I want to do and any sin that I want to stay caught up in. We can use God's grace as an excuse To continue in sin. And that's not what God's grace is there for. If you consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. This is a thought that he continues throughout this entire chapter. He begins by talking about baptism. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Remember when you were baptized... That old man is crucified. You were raised to walk in newness of life and now you want to keep going on sinning just like you did before? Listen to what he says here. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves to whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. He said you can't have it both ways. You can't say I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore I can commit whatever sin I want to. He said, that's not what the grace of God is there for. The grace of God is there because we can't do it ourselves. And now we need to try to do our best to live up to the sacrifice that he made. Having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. And he says, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. The grace of God is not a crutch that lets us limp through life, continuing to sin. The grace of God is there to do what we couldn't do ourselves. And we just can't say, well, grace will cover that. People say, well, you're putting limits on God's grace. No, I'm not. I'm not putting any limits on God's grace that he hasn't placed there himself. Let's put it that way. God has given us conditions by which we access the grace that he has offered us. And it's not our place to say, well, Jesus died on the cross and therefore it covers my sin. That's not what he wants from us. He wants us to be different. He wants us to change. He wants us to become like his son. Peter talks about this a little bit in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20. He says, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than in the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to return from the holy commandment delivered to them. The chief danger of this attitude of grace will cover it as it leads us away from God. While we invoke the name of Jesus to cover our sins in his blood, we're slipping further and further away from him. And we reach the point where we walk away from God and he'll let us. He'll let us go. And then the end for us is worse than it was in the beginning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is dealing specifically with sexual sin, but it's, the concept applies to all the sin in our life. He says, flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits, sin, excuse me, he commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Listen to what he says here. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Let's never confuse the forgiveness we receive from the grace of God as God excusing our sin. As God just letting it slide. That sin was bought and paid for. By the blood of our Savior. A price was paid for that sin. It isn't God just saying, oh, I'll just let that one go. Grace will cover it. No. The price of our sin was paid by the blood of Jesus. And we should never take that for granted. And so we tell ourselves sometimes, well, it's just not that big of a deal. It's not a big deal. What I'm doing is, you know... Again, it's kind of comparing it to other people. It could be much worse, but we just sort of trivialize our own sin. I think this is the worst way that we lie to ourselves about sin. When we can look at our sin and it just we just don't feel the sting of it like we ought to. We don't realize the importance and the impact of what that sin actually is. We justify our behavior by minimizing its severity. Let's not forget what sin is. And why we needed Jesus in the first place. Remember what I, what the book of Isaiah said. Your iniquities. Your sins. There's no inadequacy of God at play here. It's not that the Lord's hand is so short that he can't save us. It's not that he can't hear us. Your sin my sin, your iniquity, my iniquity. Those have separated us from God. And it is a big deal. We have sinned against God. The problem with this attitude of, well, it's just not that big a deal is that it affects our conscience. It just doesn't bother us like it should. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1-2, he says, The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Having our conscience seared to the point where we just don't feel it anymore. Just like somebody who burns their hand and burns the nerve endings away and they can't feel anything in their hand. When we commit the same sin over and over and over, it gets to the point where it's just not that big of a deal. We don't realize the severity, the wrongness. We don't allow ourselves to feel the pain of that. And the sorrow of that sin, we consider it just a common thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, the writer says, If we sin willfully, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let's think about that just a minute. If we sin willfully, I know the word of God. I know God says, don't do this or do this. And I either do it or I don't do it, whatever the case may be. I willfully go against that, rebelliously do it, committing the sin that God says, don't commit. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That ought to scare us to death. We ought to feel it every single time we stumble, every single time we fall down. Because of a sin, we ought to feel it every single time. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. He compares it to the law of Moses. He said, you remember under the law of Moses, how that people were to die because of committing sin? How they were to be stoned to death? How much worse is it? How much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? He counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. When we willfully commit sin, that's what happens. We're trampling the Son of God underfoot. We're taking the blood of the covenant, that blood that was shed on the cross, that covered my sins, that paid the price, and redeemed me back to God. We're just saying it's just a common thing. But instead, we need to feel the sting of it. We need to realize how much it hurts God when we do that and how much it hurts our own soul. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers that age to come, if they fall away... And renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Every single time. You know, we talk a big game. We talk a big game when we look back at people in the Bible and the things that they did. And we look at the Jews and we look at the Romans, at the crucifixion of Jesus. We talk about how bad those people were. How they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And the the spiritual leaders of the day stood there at the foot of the cross and said, He saved other people, but He can't save Himself. Why don't you come on down? And we say, I wouldn't have done that. I would have spoken up. I would have been the person to stand up for the Savior. All the while committing sin willfully and crucifying again the Son of God and putting Him to an open shame. And we might as well have been there. We might, have been, might as well have been the one driving the nails. It's not that big a deal. I don't think I've told you anything this morning that you didn't already know. These lies, these misconceptions, we know them because we recognize them in other people. We look around and we can say, that person is just lying to themselves. We're good about recognizing it, and then we're good about letting them know about it. The hard thing, the difficult thing comes when we take a look in the mirror and learning to admit to ourselves that we have the same problems in our lives. I want to consider the prayer of David that we read about in Psalm chapter 51 after his indiscretion with Bathsheba and the resulting death of Uriah. Listen to what David says when he really begins to understand the import of what actually happened in his life. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David truly recognized he looked at his own sin. When Nathan the prophet came to him and told him the story about the ewe lamb and, and he said, well, that man's going to pay the price. And Nathan said, you are the man. David realized, what have I done? He didn't say, oh, well, it's not a big deal. I'm not as bad as, you know, all those other, other people that we know. I'm not as bad as those Philistines. You see what those guys get up to? No, David said, I've sinned against God. I'm filthy. I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed. I need to be made new. He goes on to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David didn't look at the sin in his life and think, well, I'll make all these excuses about it and just move on and pretend it doesn't exist. No, he wanted to deal with it properly. He wanted to repent of that sin. He begged God for forgiveness. He said, God, help me. Make me a better person. Create in me a clean heart. Renew me. Don't cast me away from your presence. You see, that's what happens when we sin. We're saying to God, We don't want to be in your presence. We want to be without you, and he'll let us if we want it. But David said, I want to be in your presence. I want to get rid of this sin. I want to restore to me the joy of your salvation. Remember how you felt when you obeyed the gospel? Remember what it felt like for your sins to be washed in the blood of the Lamb? To come up out of that water and to know that there was a clean slate. To know that God had forgiven you. And the joy that gave you and the zeal and the fervor that you had to serve God. That's how we ought to feel every time we commit sin. We go to God in prayer. We ask for His forgiveness and we get back up and we try again. And we deal with it. We feel the pain of it. Let's learn to recognize the horrid nature of our own sin. Can we do that? Let's be disgusted by our own filthiness and desire cleansing. Let's feel the pain of betraying God and His Son and treating that price that was paid like just a common thing. Let's desire to be clean on the inside. And on the outside, let's desire God's presence in our life and not shun it by clinging to the lies of the nature of our own sin. I don't know where you stand this morning in the sight of God. Only you know that and only God knows. As we think about these things, I want us to consider, again, not the people that are around us. but Let's take a good close look in the mirror. What lies are you telling yourself this morning about sin that may be in your life? How are you deceiving yourself about the nature of your own sin? You know, there was one man who didn't sin. There was man who could stand up here honestly today and say that I never committed sin, but I know what it's like. He knows what it's like to feel temptation. He knows what it's like to feel pain. He knows what it's like to go through trials. But He did it all without committing one sin. And because of that, He was able to go to the cross at Calvary. And He was able to pay the price that allows us to go free. Let's not count that as a common thing. There's nothing less common than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more rare. If you're subject to the gospel call this morning and want to be buried with Jesus in baptism and have your sins washed away and feel the joy of God's salvation, we encourage you to do that today. If you're a Christian and you need the prayers of this congregation for forgiveness of sins, for strengthening, encouragement, whatever the church can do to help you today, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.